The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, whose glory it is always to have mercy, be gracious to all who have gone astray from your ways, and bring them again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of your word. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. If you have a bulletin in front of you, take it out real quick. If not, uh, if you're late service people, just make sure you grab one. The Collect of the Day has some great tie-ins to exactly what Professor Marquart is teaching us. And I know we've been kind of taking this first chapter a little slow, more slowly, but there's so much there to unpack. And the one thing, if you haven't got it by now, that you have to get, because if you don't get this you're going to fall down the big, slippery, long slope, and the avalanche is going to come and fall on top of you, and then everybody's going to ski on top of you and have fun, and you're going to be stuck buried in the snow, shivering and cold, and probably die. And that simple fact is this. The Bible is God's Word. All of it. Period. Every single part of it. If it's not, then, well, do I need to go through it again? You got it. So in the collect, O Lord, whose, or God, whose glory it is always to have mercy, be gracious to all who have gone astray from what? From your ways. So God tells us what ways are good and what ways are bad, what ways are right and what ways are wrong. The goal, of course, through God's word is to not only show us what ways are right or wrong, but through now that word to do exactly this, bring them again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith, right? So penitent, um, oh, good movie connection here, Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. Oh, this is a doozy, right? So we got Sean Connery, right, 007, uh, is, is there with him playing his dad. And uh, they go discover uh, the temple. They're looking for what? What are they looking for? The Holy Grail, right? Now, the Holy Grail in this particular uh, movie is not to be confused with the Da Vinci Code, right? So it, it's not Mary's womb uh, or the, 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 the fruit of some sort of union between Jesus and... and, uh, and uh, yeah, anyway, let's not even go there. It makes me sick. But... The grail is the chalice, the cup that Jesus used at the Passover. So they're trying to find this. Why do they want to find this holy grail, the chalice? They want to do what? They want to drink from it and have what? And have eternal life, right? So you see how culture kind of plays on these things that do come from Scripture. Because as Jesus said in John 6, unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood, you will have no what? No life in you, right? So it's all about faith that trusts and believes what God actually places there is for your benefit and not just spiritually, but also physically as well. Except what the world does is says it's all just physical, right? So long story short, Indiana Jones is doing his Indiana Jones thing and he's going through the temple, right? And he's, he's reading whose notes? His dad's notes, because his dad is, you know, the bad Nazis shot him and he's dying out in the anteroom or whatever it is. And so as Indy Jones is walking along, he's got to figure out, you know, what things are going to cut at him. And one of the phrases is, uh, only a penitent man may pass. Only a penitent man may pass. And he's sitting there, penitent means uh, to be sorry, uh, penitent, da 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 da. And you remember what he does? A penitent man is, whoo, humble, right? Is contrite, he's kneeling, he's prostrating himself. And of course, right after he does that, it always works this way, right? Then the, the arrows or the saws or whatever they are, I don't even remember, you know, miss him, right? So to be penitent means to recognize your position or your status before the Most High Judge. And Mark Hart's going to get into that here in our next section, okay? So all we can do is throw ourselves at the mercy of the court. As Luther said, and I've been, I've, it's kind of been in my brain the last week, I've said it to some preschool teachers and other people, we, we are but beggars. <laughs> we are but beggars. Just, just like the Samaritan woman, just a crumb, Lord. But, but we are but beggars. We're not worthy to sit at the table. 
uh, we're not able to discern, understand, do, or accomplish. And so the path of a sinner then is one of repentance. Okay, now hang on to that. Because what I want to connect that, and, and this goes to everything more court is, but this is, this is a contemporary connection. So pay attention if you want your practical Joel Olstein stuff, right? So, Jeremiah in our Old Testament text, and I don't want to take too much away from Pastor Grady's sermon, good sermon today. Um, if you will not listen to me to walk in my law, God says, that I've set before you, and to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I send to you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and I will uh, make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. So for uh, a Wednesday morning Bible, sto- Bible, sto- uh, Bible story, <laughs> Bible story, folks, Bible class folks, we're studying the book of Isaiah, and we're talking about the time leading up to what? The exiles, the, two, the Babylonian captivity, okay? Uh, and so Jeremiah is prophesying, he's a, he's a contemporary, if you will, of Isaiah, uh, and, and prophesying the same thing. And so what he's saying is, is, God says, listen to my word, and do what my word says, and if you don't, what's going to happen? You're, you're going to be desolate, okay? And of course, we know that's what ends, ends up happening with both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, as they're led away into exile, Okay? Uh, scripture talks about that very specifically. You know, some of them had all this fancy jewelry. They even had nose rings back then, and they were led away by their nose rings. Can you imagine that? Okay. Uh, and by other rings connected to their body. I'll leave that image in your mind. Um, yeah. So don't tell me. I don't need to know that, uh, where you have your rings or your piercings. Um, but they were led into exile. Okay. They were led away. Why? Because they didn't do what? They weren't penitent. They weren't repentant. They believed that they could stand on their own, which is idolatry, okay? Even though they had been believers. So I want you to repeat after me this phrase. Once saved, always saved. Now repeat after me. That's not true. (laughs) Okay, we don't believe that. We believe that you can have faith, and then you can, you can reject. You can get caught up in sin, you can fall down a slippery slope, and you can become impenitent, not contrite, failing to recognize sin, continuing to do it. Think about what you hear in our larger Christian context still today. Oh, we're supposed to be all about love. And so you crazy Missouri Synod Lutherans or you conservatives who say that fill in the blank, homosexuality is a sin, living together is a sin, having sex before marriage is a sin, abortion is a sin, you guys just don't get it. And we say, wait a minute, did God really say? Does God say homosexuality is a sin? Listen to these words. Okay, The word homosexuality isn't there, but it kind of covers all of it. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, you have sexual uh, impure thoughts? Have you committed sin in your past? Don't stand up and blurt everything out loud. If you have, and I would imagine that probably covers the majority of the people here, I know it would include me, am I going to inherit the kingdom of God? So you get this common argument, well, wait a minute, everybody's a sinner. And so because everybody is a sinner, follow the logic on this one, therefore what? Therefore what? Anybody who claims to have faith will be saved. But what does Scripture warn you about? What's the problem with sin and continued sin? What's the problem with refusing to be contrite or penitent? Where does that lead? Huh? When you say that what I am doing is not sin, you are rejecting who? 
you're rejecting God, specifically Jesus, who now is the judge. You get that? And so, you know, we deal with this, I mean, my goodness, and I'm sure all of you have this in your families as well, okay? Um, my grandfather, have I told you this story? I don't want to dwell on it. Left my grandma when my dad was like eight or nine years old, ran off with his boyfriend, left my grandma with four kids at home, one of them a war orphan from my uncle who died uh, on, uh, um, at uh, uh, Normandy. And, uh, and he ran off with his boyfriend and traveled the world. Lived the life of luxury. While my grandma worked two, three, four jobs just to, just to get by, okay? Um, was a homosexual, de- would detest some of the LGB, whatever it is, QT stuff we have going on today. He was a intellectual homosexual, but still a practicing homosexual at the same time. He considered to be freed from the constraints of the physical world. Go figure. Anyway, that's a whole other discussion. But that was, that was part of the, of the effects of modernism. He would have been a true modernist in some regards uh, in an early postmodern. Um, long story short, um, my older brother, about a year, two, year, two years ago, I can lose track of time now, um, decided that uh, uh, being married for 30 years wasn't cutting it and decided he had always been a homosexual. He'd always had feelings, and now he needed to follow his heart. And he stopped and talked to a pastor. He's an over-the-road truck driver, not the pastor, my brother, and stopped to talk to some pastor in the East Coast, and this pastor told him, that's who God made you. You've got to listen to who you are. You've got to follow your heart. And so he promptly moved out, found a boyfriend down in Houston, Texas, um, who's an aspiring rapper, supposedly, took about $30,000 of my brother's money, and my brother has since moved in with him and lives down in Houston, Texas. Divorced his wife and has... Uh, so you want to talk about dealing with some of these situations? I'm not afraid to talk about them. I've got them in my family. Maybe you have them in yours. Maybe you have them with your friends and family. Okay. Do I still love my brother? Do I love my grandfather? Sure, yeah. Um, What does that mean, though? Now, Paul goes on and says this. Listen to this. Um, Where is it? Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. What makes you light? What makes you light? First of all, where does light come from? Light comes from God. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. To have Jesus now, are you baptized? You have the light. You have faith. But now what's the hindrance to the light? Or what can be? You doing what? You rejecting that light. And you you living in sin. So the life of a Christian, and go back to your catechism with baptism. Right? So baptism talks about, uh, you know, uh, by daily contrition and repentance, what's supposed to happen? The old man does what? Dies with all its what? Earthly desires. And the new man does what? Arises to live before God. So the life of a Christian, then, one who has faith, is to recognize sin and repent and turn away from it. Okay? So, you know, let's say I've got somebody who's, you know, struggling with fill in the blank, whatever sin that is on your mind right now, and it's a sin, okay? And they come to me and, you know, pastor, I'm doing this, and I'm having a hard time not doing it, right? The good I want to do, I don't do. The bad that I don't want to do, I keep on doing, like Paul says, Um, and I counsel them with God's word, and, uh, but yet I continue to commune them. How can I do that? How can I do that? They're obviously sinning, correct? And they've just confessed that sin. How can I continue to commune them? Or should I? Oh! Let's see where you fall on this. Let's say I have a different person, same sin. Same exact sin. Right? And they come to me and they say, 
Glory, glory, hallelujah. I found my heart. I found who I really am. Pastor, I just wanted you to rejoice with me that blah, blah, fill in the blank. Right? Which, by the way, is what my older brother wanted me to do for him. So I can't do that. I told him that from God's word. I love you, brother. I love you to death. Now, the second person, I'm probably not going to commune. You know why? Both of them struggling with sin. But one of them is what? Are you getting it now? So, to be repentant, to be a Christian, doesn't mean that you're going to be without sin. Repentant means that you recognize sin and you believe that this guy up here takes all your sin away, even the sin you're struggling with. And he says, I'm going to be there with you to help you when you struggle with that sin, but yet walk in my ways, follow my word, and if you don't, then what are you doing? You're flipping this guy off and saying, I want nothing to do with your ways or your word or what you've got to say. I'm just going to do my own thing. Do you see the difference there? So that's where it all hinges. And, and that's what we have to be a little bit better as Lutherans of talking to people about and explaining some of this. Because one of the accusations we always get is, oh, you, you conservative Lutherans, you Missouri Synod, you're so perfect, you know. And you're not going to commune with anybody else because you guys are you're just better than everybody. Right? And there's no sinners, you know. And, and actually, the exact opposite is true. <laughs> we recognize and believe and if you don't, then you need to come talk to me or Pastor Grady, by the way. But when you come to church and you come to the rail, it shouldn't be what you're giving to God or what you're doing or what you're hoping to get. It should be because you recognize you're a sinner and because you are struggling with sin in some way, shape, or form. And if you're not, then you need to examine your life a little better. Which is why Paul says, let a man... So examine himself before he eats. Right? Okay? Um, so, very important part. Okay. I'm going to stop there and take a question or two that may pertain to that or something else that you've had stuck up here since last week or the week before. And then we're going to jump into Professor Marquardt. Okay? But I wanted to make sure that you, you get that penitent side of it and that you understand that, you know, just because, you know, you've been baptized... In and of itself, once saved doesn't always mean always saved because you can gradually fall away from the faith. And I know people who have done that. Now, it, it, I would say 90% of the time, and the other pastors could correct me, I don't think somebody starts off saying, oh, I'm going to reject God. <laughs> you know, it's one little thing needs to, leads to another little thing, right? It's the same thing we tell our, our youth, right? Uh, one little kiss leads to, I mean, you know, you just get one step from there right? Uh, you know, one little sip of alcohol. You know, one little, what's that, Malachi, what's that stuff all the kids are smoking in high school? What's that called? Not weed. That's for, that's for you older generation. Huh? Jewels? Yeah. Anyway, yeah, whatever. So, but I mean, okay, let's not, let's just move on from there. But you get the idea. One, all different stuff can lead to different stuff. And everybody has addictions in different ways, right? Everybody struggles with sin. So you've, you've got to be mindful of, of where you're free in the gospel, but all things, are all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial, right? So recognize where the sin's at. All right. Questions, comments, things you want to throw at me? Yes, sir. That's right. 
Yeah. That's right. Why, why is your wife looking at you with anyway? <laughs> I had a, a lady once years ago, actually it would have been when I was on field work at, at, at seminary, which seems a lifetime ago, and I remember her coming and talking with me and the pastor, um, and, and she asked me to stay when she talked, and, and she just talked about how she felt uncomfortable coming to the Lord's Supper because she knew how many sins she had. And I just, I can't take the Lord's Supper because I just don't feel like I'm ever prepared. So that could be the other flip side of it, is then you have to reassure, reassure her that, you know, one, are you ever going to be perfectly prepared to receive the Lord's forgiveness? Have you ever, you know, it's kind of like sinning against your wife. Have you ever said, I'm sorry enough? <laughs> right? Okay. Uh, you know, so... Pastor Grady gets around this by putting flooring down in his house for his wife. <laughs> Did it work? <laughs> oh, I love it. That's great. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, so, you know, it's, you know, CFW Walther had this exactly right on. I mean, it, it, it's a paradox. It's two things at the same time. You're both saint and sinner. When? As long as you live in this life. I mean, it's, it's, it's both and, okay? But, but to reject, you know, out of hand the sinner side or to reject what God's Word said, it says, you know, puts you on a very dangerous path. And then, of course, what does light have to do with darkness, and so, um, you know, and even Jesus, you know, Matthew 18, if your, you know, brother, you know, is caught in sin, you're saying, what do you do? You go and talk to him privately, by the way. Don't put it up on Facebook. Don't tweet about him. Go talk to him privately. And hopefully what? You'll win him over. And they will do what? This is Oculi Sunday, by the way. Oculi means to see. Okay? So from the intro it, my eyes are ever toward toward myself, toward what I want, toward the Lord, right? For he will pluck my feet out of the net, okay? So our eyes are ever towards the Lord, what he has to say, examining our life, and we know that as we struggle with sin, he will pluck our feet from the net because we get captured in the, the net of sin and idolatry and selfishness, and he plucks us from that, right? We're the, we're the fishes in the net. I always like to tell the kid, I know it's fish, but we're the fishes in the net, Right? Um, you know, he, he gathers us, and, uh, and thanks be to God for that. Okay, was there another question I missed? I forgot. Yes? So, when we're trying to explain our own sin faith to others, a lot of times when they're accused of wanting to follow the and people bring up the doctrine of election, election and what we need to do about baptism, how would you say about that? Sure, great question. The doctrine of election, first and foremost, is uh, complete comfort and assurance for a penitent sinner, right? So, um, you know, when you're struggling with, am I saved? When you're, when you're pulling the Saving Private Ryan moment, did I do enough? Did I really earn your life and your sacrifice for me? You know, then the doctrine of election comes in and says what? I am his and he is mine, right? I know my sheep and my sheep know me. No one can pluck them out of my hand, right? No one else can take you out of God's hand but you can jump out of the hand or sneak out of it. I've seen very few people jump. Normally it's kind of slither away, right? You know, they go from the palm to the index finger. Anyway, so it's just little, it's just gradual. Um, and, and that's the problem with sin. So doctrine of election is pure gospel. Pure gospel, only gospel, okay? Um, Judas had everything, had it all. He was chosen apostle. What did he do? Who did he confess his sin to? Not Jesus. He went to the chief priests and the, the Pharisees. Did they know anything about confession and absolution? No. When he confessed uh, his sin to them, they said, what is that to us? They're the ones God put in that place to deal with forgiveness and sins. And they don't want anything to do. They don't want to deal with that. And Jesus would have forgiven him. Did Jesus forgive Peter? 
Peter did just as bad of a sin. I mean, he did. Did Jesus restore him? Yeah. Okay. Um, last week, or I think maybe Wednesday night, I talked about, uh, oh, what's his crazy name? Uh, David's a blah, blah, blah. Who basically didn't, so he turned against David, right? And uh, he didn't believe David would forgive him, and he went and hung himself. So all of this, of course, is prophetic, coming up to Jesus, uh, the one true king, and Judas who hangs himself. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, our life is hidden with Christ in God, always. And so, you know, the, the question is, you know, do you acknowledge you're a sinner? Do you recognize that? Um, you know, and are you struggling with that? I think sometimes even in our churches, we, we can expect people to be too perfect, or if people are struggling with sin, that then we look down on them. And I think that's very sad and not very Christian. You know, we should, we should you know, recognize that one, we're all sinners and all of us struggle with different. We shouldn't be so surprised. I mean, I've seen that in churches. You know, somebody who's, you know, they've been an elder, they've been whatever, chairman of this board, and, and, and they go and commit a grievous sin, something really bad, maybe even public. And all of a sudden now, what happens? Now, we want nothing to do with that person. Kick them out of here. Jesus says, do not associate with them. But wait, what if they're repentant? You you picking up what I'm laying down here? We don't deal with this well as a church. We expect everybody who walks through the door, we expect all of you to live your life, have it all figured out. And if you don't have it all figured out, then, well, you go someplace else. I think that's why we have a lot of backdoor losses in the Missouri Senate. We're afraid to get our sleeves dirty and deal with sin. And we don't want to talk about it. Okay? So we don't want to talk about the stuff we have in our family. That's why I share stuff with you about what I struggle with, what my family struggles with. My family's not perfect. I'm not perfect. Okay? How about you? So, you know, um, and so bear with one another in love, Scripture says. Okay? I don't know if that answered it. Were we good? We're not. Okay. You're going to walk down the double predestination path at the same time, right? That, that, that at the same time God, you know, elects to heaven that he elects then to hell, right? Um, which, of course, we do not believe, by the way. Okay, we don't believe in double predestination. Uh, we, you know, God says that he has predestined. Um, who are those? They are those whom God has chosen. You're not going to like my answer. Am I one of those? Am I baptized? Do I have faith? I mean, I think it's, 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 it's a really simple thing. And I think we make it really convoluted, you know, by diving deeper into it. So, again, it's pure gospel, okay? Uh, scripture says baptism now saves you. So, yeah. I just watched a YouTube video last week of some fundamentalist Baptist preacher, uh, you know, talking about there's three different kinds of Lutherans and all of them are going to hell. He's from Phoenix, Arizona. Somebody sent me the link. And uh, yeah, he's, he's preaching this little strip mall. And, and uh, you know, and so he, he talks about the, he goes, well, he's got, he actually has a southern accent. He's in Arizona. Yeah, well, well, we know these, these ELCA Lutherans, they're definitely going to hell. You know, and then he lists off, you know, the issues that we have. Homosexuality, women as pastors, you know, they're okay with abortion, all that. So he, goes, he goes, we're not going to spend much time on them. They're kind of a done deal. They're doomed. <laughs> And he goes on, but then there's these Missouri synods. <laughs> and I don't think hardly any of them are going to heaven because they're not saved yet. So he goes on to talk about, you know, making a commitment, making a choice for Christ. Uh, and, uh, and then he emphasizes, uh, you know, they believe that a little bit of water and some words from Scripture will save you. And I was like, yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. And then, you know, but his emphasis was you're only saved when you do what? Right, right. So, so Jesus is, is out here. You've got you've to build your bridge to get to him, right? Which, of course, the way we need to talk is, well, I guess Jesus isn't powerful enough to come get me is what it comes down to, right? 
Jesus is, is, is a very bad first responder. He gets the 911 call and he only drives halfway there. You know, you've got to crawl or get the rest of the way there to the ambulance to get what you need. Okay. Um, so, okay. Yeah. So, um, I don't want to, I'm not going to dive into too much of it because I would say this. God doesn't go into great detail. You know, he knows everything. He has chosen you before the foundation of the world, right? He knew you, before, you know, fearfully and wonderfully you were made in your mother's womb. Um, and, uh, and, and yet he does allow things to happen to you, right? I mean, then you start going down this path. Why does God allow? How many million babies have been killed in the womb? You know, I mean, I've got a good pastor friend whose wife now at 60 years of age is going through dementia. And it's, it's gotten bad really quick. You know, and you naturally have questions. Why does God allow this? Why does he allow that? And of course, we don't have the answers to that, right? No one can know the mind of God. What do we come back to? That he will bring about everything for your good in some way, shape, or form. Same thing Joseph told his brothers. That which you intended for me was evil, but God intended it for good. So faith catches Jesus in his promise. Faith, back to the Samaritan woman again, says, hey, just a crumb. Faith believes that God will yet preserve, provide, and some way forward. But you'll never understand it. You think of all the you-know-what's happened to you in your life. Got it figured out? Be honest. I don't. But my faith says God knows and for whatever reason has allowed this and will yet provide for me. I mean, my goodness, he rejected his own son on the cross. He damned his own son up there for you and for me. So that you and I could be saved. Okay? So faith now heeds his words and says, this is true. I need to work on this. I struggle with this. I'm not going to get it right. But by his grace and mercy, <laughs> no one else can take me out of his hands. And what precious, you know, I am Jesus Little lamb ever. Supposed to be glad and happy most of the time, people. Ever glad at heart I am, right? Okay, question back there. I, that's a wonderful little song. Is that a trick question mark? <laughs> Knowing faith and having faith. Right, right. Yeah, I know I'm going to be forgiven, so I'll just, I mean, I think I mentioned last week or so, I remember I had a little bit of a crisis of conscience when I was either in high school or college, and, and I knew what I was doing was sinful and wrong. I knew what God's Word said, but I didn't want to follow God's Word. I was having fun, you know, and so you say to yourself, you go to your church, you know, and you you got the confession of sins, and of course, part of you is like, yeah, I know that's sin, but, but I really want to do this, right? And so what you need to hear from somebody and need to check yourself with is, this is sinful and wrong. This is not okay. What does light have in common with darkness? You can't have it both ways. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And, and that's why God, you know, Scripture says God disciplines you know, those he loves as a father disciplines his son. So we need more discipline. We don't deal with discipline well in our churches. You know, historically, when someone was caught in some sort of, uh, of sin, if they, you go through Matthew 18, you know what would happen? It'd be announced to the congregation. Let us pray, dear people of God, for Mr. or Mrs. blah, 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 blah. For they are currently rejecting God's word. All attempts at reconciliation with them and bringing them to penitence have failed. We must now pray for them. And pray that they will recognize their sin and turn from God's ways. When was the last time you heard that done in a divine service? How many times have you done it, pastors? And I'll answer the question too. How many times have you done that in your career, Pastor Ullman? I don't mean to put you on the spot. I haven't either. I haven't either. It's in all of our agendas. We don't, we don't deal with sin well. 
Now you say, oh, well, people will assume we're just kind of judging people. Again, who's the judge? It's God's word. You know, it's pointing that out. And the hope is always to restore the sinner, to recognize how bad the sin is. Okay? Now, obviously, if other people don't, you know, if you're doing something privately, you know, whatever, you know, other people don't know about, you know, that's where then, you know, your conscience obviously is going to be at you. My conscience has been at me before when I've struggled with sin. And eventually I had to come down to, okay, I've got to repent of that, that's wrong, or I've got to, I've got to reject what? I mean, that's ultimately what I came up against a wall. Because God's word does not err. Okay? Okay. Any other questions? What? No? Ow. She promised me she had some good questions for me. I assume I'll hear about it over lunch. Okay, here we go. I think this is going, this is going, to, this is going to go right at a little bit of what, what we talked. You ready? Yet this is precisely, precisely what Christian theology cannot grant when it comes to the Bible, which faith recognizes the very Word of God. So back up real quick. It's not my faith. This is why at the baptism, uh, the parents bring uh, the infant or the child forward, and the question is this, how are you to be named? Well, have any of you seen a uh, two-week-old sit up and speak? Yes, my name is. Right, that's not going to happen. How are you to be named? Who answers? The parents. Oh, and then we go through the rest of the questions. Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? Well, do you, little baby? Do you believe in God the Son, little baby? Do you believe in God the Holy Spirit, little baby? Oh, wait a minute. Hey, little baby, do you reject the devil? Say yes. <laughs> you know, do you reject all his works, all his ways? Do you, do you understand what's going on here? Somebody tell me what's going on. Why are the questions phrased that way? There's two reasons. Can, can the parents believe for the child? No. Nobody can believe for somebody else. Is there such a thing as objective faith? Ooh. Or is faith subjective? What's the answer? Faith, first and foremost, is objective, meaning it's a gift that's given to you. Faith comes from hearing the Word of God. doesn't say understand it, does it? Does it? Discerning? Faith simply comes through God's Word. You're, you want to help me out here with a little object lesson? All right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. What just happened? <laughs> you got a car. I got a, the transmission lines are leaking a little bit. You need to get that fixed. Um, so, an object, which is faith, God's gift comes from hearing the word, and that faith is simply, yeah, this is the reckless sower. God's a reckless sower of seed, right? He throws the seed. We're going to keep doing this, okay? The seed, and sometimes, go ahead and put it in your pocket, sometimes the seed finds fertile soil, right? And he, and he, he takes that gift, and he goes and drives it around, <laughs> and he uses it for all sorts of good things, okay? Other times, that seed falls on rocky soil. Go ahead. Yeah, well, they can't see that. Let's be a little more dramatic, right? Just throw it back at me. Oh, that's fine, okay. <laughs> Just reject it, right? Um, and other times, you know, it's, 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 he's, he's picking it up sometimes, and sometimes he's, you know, and it's kind of, it's his back and forth, right? Are you following along with this? But faith is objective. It's God's gift. So what are we saying now is coming to this baby through the waters of holy baptism? faith. And not only that, we're also saying faith has already come to this child because everything leading up to the baptism, you notice where it comes from? It's all scripture. Okay? Hear what Jesus said to the little children who were brought to them. Let the little children come to me. Okay? For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So we hear the word first even before the baptism. So the baby or the person 
you ready for this? Already has faith even before baptism comes. The word's at work. But because we're called to baptize all nations and because we believe baptism also does what? How often do you need this, this gift given to you? A lot. Why? Because you do what you said, Mark. I mean, that's what we do. We struggle with sin and we reject. Okay? Um, baptism, obviously, one Lord, one faith. One faith, not your faith, my faith. And that's where you got to be very careful going down the subjective path, right? Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. You, you see some of the false theology that, and I used to, you know, I was in the back playing the drum. Right? Wishing I still had my mullet rocking in the back. You know? Everybody likes the drummer, right? So, but everything, it becomes about who? You, me, my. Pay attention to the, the, the first person pronouns. Okay? And, and so that's why you've you got to be careful with that. So faith, God's gift, it's the faith of the, of the whole Christian church. It's the one true faith, which is why we have that phrase. I believe in the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of the resurrection of the, and life everlasting, right? So that's the unity, right? And so we break the unity when we reject, you know, all of that, okay? Okay, good, good. Can we move on? Was that me that interrupted us? Sorry. So when Scripture speaks, God speaks, we still up there, and the matter is settled. Underline or highlight that. Or just put that one on your fridge or tape it to the dashboard of your car. Um, when Scripture speaks, God speaks and the matter is settled. No human authority is or can be on par, on a par, with the divine standing of Holy Scripture. And let's read Romans 3 verse 4 together. Let God be true and every human being a liar. Oh, I don't want to be a liar. I think I'll decide, you know, what it's going to be. Okay, I'm going to ignore you. So, attempting to correct Scripture, uh, whether with Aristotle, Josephus, or even Einstein, is as absurd in theology as it would be in law to appeal, uh, to appeal from the Supreme Court to a local traffic court. Interesting thought. Now look where he goes. Nor may theology strike a pose of neutrality or impartiality between Holy Scripture and other documents. That would fly in the face of Christ's words. And let's read Matthew 12.30. This is actually up there, Matthias. Just put it back up. I'm just reading from the text. So let's put it back up there. Okay? Uh, Matthew 12, verse 30. Let's read it together. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Okay? So it is necessary now to introduce here the old distinction between reason as master and reason as servant. And this is where we're going to answer a little bit of your question about the doctrine of election and also now the struggling with sin, okay? To understand any statement at all, it is necessary to use reason in the form of grammar, logic, and of course we know rhetoric and the like. This so-called servant use of reason is indispensable also in the case of Holy Scripture. And there's a few passages you can kind of read on your own, Matthew 13, 19, Acts 8, 30, and 1 Corinthians 14, 19. Indeed, <clears throat> since we are to love God, also with our minds, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, uh, we can never lavish too much intellectual efforts on his inspired word, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your... So God wants you to use your brains. I mean, he's, he's given you that. I mean, the, that, that intellectual use, asking those questions, you know, I, I always tell my boys there's no such thing as a wrong question, except when I say there is, right? <laughs> Um, so, and I'll let them know, <laughs> but ask, I mean, ask the questions, I mean, and, and, but, but also trust the answers that are given to you from, from, the, from the text, okay? Okay, where am I at? I lost my place. Oh, there we go. Um, so, ministers of that word must naturally also acquire a working knowledge of Greek and Hebrew, so that they may study the sacred text in their original languages. So there's three things required for admittance, at least into the regular program of seminary. 
you have to pass uh, proficiency uh, in both uh, Koine Greek, not the same as classical Greek, uh, common Greek, uh, and uh, Hebrew, uh, and then also uh, pass proficiency in Christian doctrine. So until you pass those three exams or courses, you're not technically enrolled in at least the Masters of Divinity program. Okay? And then we have other programs where uh, at the very minimum usually is required some uh, proficiency in Greek. Um, you know, when you talk to any of the pastors and seminarians, they either loved it or they hated it. Okay, uh, because you're either, you're either some people are gifted for languages and, and, and some people are not. Okay, um, I mean, I, I, had a, there were, I had a few classmates when I, I had to take Greek during the summer because I didn't come through. Even though I graduated from a Concordia, I was not pre-sem. Okay, so I didn't have any of my pre-sem stuff out of the way. I did, uh, my, my major uh, was basically liberal arts, humanities, philosophy, history, and I just did that because I loved it. Uh, and, and, and still do to this day. And so then when I finally decided to go to seminary, then I had to take Greek during the summer and Hebrew during the fall, okay? And out of, we had almost 40 in our Greek class that one summer, and we had three guys who, after those eight, nine, or 10 weeks, I can't remember how long it was, who dropped out at that point. So this is not for me. I just no, I don't want to do it. Um, and then that's okay. I mean, you know, the, the, you know, the, the Lord uh, leads us all to recognize uh, where abilities, gifts, and talents are. Okay, let's move on. So, totally different now, or totally different from this, is the master use of reason. That use seeks not simply to understand, but to judge the truth of what has been understood. And it is this master use of reason which is the essence of historical criticism. Right? So, master use would say, you know, I believe this, or I believe God's word says this, therefore, da-da-da-da-da. So master use of reason, for example, with uh, some of my family members in Scripture would say, you know, if Paul were alive today, he wouldn't talk about women remaining silent in the assembly. There's no way he would do that. He'd be vilified on Twitter. I mean, he'd be, he'd be you know, people would hate him worse than some people hate Trump. It'd be that bad, you know, um, you know, and, sp and people say that. So if he were around now, different time, different place, and so it would be different. So therefore, I'm not going to really listen to what Paul says. And oh, by the way, when he talks about the sexuality stuff and the sexual immorality and a man laying with a man or a woman lying with a woman, he would change his mind. And oh, by the way, not just Paul, but but. You know, when God says that in the Old Testament, <laughs> that, that's, all, that's all ancient, you know. That's because people back then, God was trying, they didn't have all the medicine we have. They didn't have condoms and all the, the ability to help prevent diseases or fight them. And so God had to be firm on all that stuff back then. But, it, but if God was speaking today, he wouldn't say that. Just now what, what's happened? Have I used the master uh, uh, master use of reason or the servant use? I've used the master use. And that's what you do when you say, what does Scripture say to me? Or, I'm going to interpret Scripture according to my experiences. Okay? Or what's happened in my life. Right? I'm going to give you my testimony. Be very careful with that. When it comes to what does God say. So he goes on. Critic or criticism comes from the Greek word uh, for judge. It's actually a, a krino. Now, clearly, God's word is to judge us, not, not we it. Subjecting Scripture to historical criticism amounts to a grotesque reversal of roles. The sinner fancies himself on the bench, right? The sinner's up here. He's the judge, right? Um, and he may not speak up that often, but he, he speaks when he feels he needs to speak. It's kind of like Clarence Thomas. Any of you follow any of the Supreme Court stuff? He doesn't talk very much. But when he does, <laughs> right? It had been like two years, I think, if the article I read was correct, since he had talked during an argument. He prefers to study stuff on the side, okay? Um, so, so here you are as a sinner, you know, and, uh, and you're going to be now uh, the judge, Okay. amounts to a grotesque reversal of roles. The sinner fancies himself on the bench, and God's word is down in the defendant's dock. 
A theology so conducted resembles Edgar Allan Poe's nightmare, and I've actually got this story on my shelf, about an insane asylum taken over and run by the patients. Okay? That guy, his mind was wacky. It was really interesting. Uh, but very, I mean, very true when you start to kind of think about some of that, right? Sound theology bases itself squarely on Holy Scripture as the only true norm according to which all teachers and teachings are to be judged and evaluated. This is the Reformation's Scripture alone principle, as reasserted by the formula of Concord. If Scripture is indeed the only judge, then human reason cannot also be judge under whatever pretext. By definition, however, historical criticism claims the role of judge, for it insists on the scholar's insight and duty to subject all historical claims and documents without exception to systematic doubt, cross-examination, and possible falsification. Only one conclusion is therefore possible, Scripture alone and the subjection of Scripture to the historical critical method are mutually exclusive. Okay? They, they, you cannot put them together. One must choose between them. So this comes back to let your yes be yes and your no be no. Right? So you're struggling with sin? Well, is it sin or not? I mean, it is. Then that, that's, that's where you've got to go with it. And then you're going to have to change and amend your ways. Okay? Um, God promises when you, when you reject his word and reject sin that, you know, you're going to have some problems come your way. Your life's going to be, you know, maybe a little desolate. Okay? Repercussions of sin here this side of heaven. Okay? And we'll finish up with this. Uh, so, in behind the Reformation, Scripture alone stands the majesty of God Himself in His chosen messages. And let's read 2 Corinthians 10.5 to close. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to God. Think and dwell on that, would you? Okay. Questions, comments before we pray? Something to think about? Let's stand and close with the Lord's Prayer. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us again to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Peace be with you. Amen.